be in Romans chapter number five. We're in the middle of this parenthesis. We started it in verse number 13, and it's going to end at the end of verse 17. So we did 13 and 14 last week. We are now in verse 15. The Bible says, Romans 5, verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Someone may say, I want to love the Lord from Deuteronomy 6 with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength. We, we know that verse. Someone may, may want to do that and may honestly strive to do that, but they can't. They can't. They can't do it. Most people, I guess you got to be careful of saying that nowadays, but most people would say they want to be saved. Probably more people would say they would want to go to heaven. They just don't want to go there God's way. <laughs> they want to go there their own way. It's the guy with the balance. You know, he's got just one or two more good works than he does bad, and he thinks he's going to merit God's uh, forgiving hand on the day of judgment. And it's just not going to be that way. It has to be by, what does it say? Verse 15, it has to be by the free gift. Isaiah 55 says, it's without money and it's without price. People say, I'd just rather buy something. You know, you go to the doctor and you find out you've got some rare disease. And then you find out that the doctor tells you, hey, look, there's one medicine that'll cure what you got. And there's one doctor that has it. And you got to go to that doctor. And you say, who's the doctor? And you realize you know that doctor. And you realize all the bad that you've done to that doctor. You grew up with him. You cheated him. You robbed him. You stole from him. You beat him up. You left him on the roadside. That's the guy. He said, yeah, that's the guy. He's got the cure. He's the only guy that got the cure. But the thing is, you don't want nothing for it. Now, if you're like me, you'd probably be thinking, all I've done to that guy, I just won't pay for it. <laughs> I don't want to take nothing from him. I mean, don't we think like that? We get in situations and you're just like, look, I just want to pay for it. Why? Because you want to be free from any other. I'm telling you, that's kind of what it's like with us and God. There's something in us where we know our conscience bears witness to that fact. And we just try to hold the truth and righteousness. It's not like we don't have it. It's just held in un 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 unrighteousness. We've sinned against God. And there's a part of us that says, I just got to pay for it. <laughs> but we don't, we can't receive it that way. It's a free gift and it's only by God's grace. Now look what else it says in verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead. Now, I'd like to park here for a little bit because there are some groups that would say that man has a total inability to respond to God because they're dead. So I'd like to look at a couple of verses. One of them is Revelation chapter number three. Go there. And I want to try to get some context on the word dead. And we'll see if this, this helps uh, the saints this morning. Revelation chapter number three. 
The context is the Sardis church. You'll see that in a minute. Romans, uh, Revelation 3, verse number 1. Watch what the Bible says. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis. Well, you don't need to have a theological degree to figure out where that church is. It's in Sardis. And you don't have to have a theological degree to figure out that the church would be referring to the body of Christ, which would be what? Believers. Believers have been made alive forevermore, right? Watch what it goes on to say. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. <laughs> now, isn't that interesting? God calls that church in Sardis dead. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought everybody that is in the Lord Jesus Christ has been baptized by his Holy Spirit, is placed into his body, and they're alive. What in the world does that mean? It means there's nothing worse than a dead church. That's what it means. We've all used that. It looks like there's life, but it's dead. It's got nothing to do with them not being in Christ. It's got nothing to do with them not being regenerated. What's an easy example? Look around at this whole carnival church in Christianity. I'm telling you, you read some of their doctrinal statements. They're as vague as can be, but they've got the gospel. They're not trusting in their works. They're trusting in God's grace. Now, they might not be as conservative as we would like, they might not be as deep in their Bible teaching. And we would say, man, that's a dead church. <laughs> Even though it looks alive. I mean, you can go there. There'd be more activity. There'd be more people. There'd be more, you know how it goes, lights, camera, action. It looks alive, but it's dead. It's dead. It doesn't mean that everybody there is lost. It doesn't mean that the preacher's lost. It doesn't mean that they don't have the gospel. What does it mean? They've gotten so far away from God that they've brought the world into their church. They brought the world's music, the world's dress code, the world's thinking, the world's activities. All of it they've brought in. The thing's dead. As much as there might be activity there. That's a far cry from saying everybody there is lost and going to hell. Now you talk to them, you witness to them the same way you would anybody else. But they act like the world and they tolerate sin like the world tolerates sin. And we say, man, that thing, that's dead. I'm not going there. And you get the flip side. You get the flip side of that where it's two or three or four or five people that are on social security and have gone there their whole life and they're 65 to 85 and no one new has visited in five years. And you know what the mega church would say, man, that, that works dead. Well, what does that mean? That means nobody news coming. There isn't any life in it to actually have it go beyond one or two or three people. 
what do you think? That means that the five people that are going or the three people that are going are lost? No. You think those people are dead in their sins? No, of course not. That's what Revelation 3 is talking about, this Sardis church. They're not lost. The work's dead. That's the clear context. And let's look at something else because we need to be careful. We just don't take the word dead and say that just means someone has a total inability. We've got to look at the context. Luke 15. Luke 15. Watch what it says. Let's go to. Uh, okay. Luke 15. Verse number 15. We know the, the, the this, this story. This, this younger going out into the far country, riotous living, right? Look at verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. In Luke chapter number 15, verse number 15, he went. He made the choice. Look at verse number 16. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. He did that. He made the choice to do that. By the way, no man gave unto him. You get somebody that's walking away from the things of the Lord, don't enable them by giving them things. <laughs> that's one of the worst things parents do nowadays. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You're going to have to make a choice. Either let that boy go and do what he's going to do or keep enabling his activity by paying for it. <laughs> well, I'd just rather have him drink liquor here. At least I know they're here and safe. No, you don't do that. Well, he'll leave. Let him leave. Let him leave. Don't give him anything. Verse number uh, 17, and when he came to himself, see that? He had to come to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He sees he's perishing. Look what it says in verse number 18. I will arise and go to my father. And will say, he is doing something. Look at verse number 20. And he arose. He did that. He made a choice and came to his father. Go all the way down to verse 24. Watch what it says. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. He came to himself. He said, make me one of thy hired servants. He said, I have sinned. I don't know how you get total inability to fit into Luke chapter number 15. He made some choices. None of it indicates that he had no part in it. God just. What's the dead mean? The dead, I believe, in verse in chapter 15 in Luke means he is separated from his father. Are you dead in sins before you came to Christ? Was I dead in sins before I came to Christ? Yes. What does that mean? It means we were totally separated from the Father. 
and it means we are totally depraved in that sin. And just like that boy in Luke 15, we were a lost rebel, a lost rebel. People say, well, go, go to John 11. John 11. I don't see how you get total inability out of Luke 15. I see that boy made some choices. And John chapter number 11. You've got a dead corpse in the context. It's a body. Lazarus. He's dead. Do you know what a dead body has? No ability to respond. Okay, well, you see there that uh, that's got to be total inability. God has to do something. Yeah, God does have to do something. But let's see if we can dig a little deeper, get an understanding of uh, what the Bible means when it says dead in its specific context. Is God showing us in John 11 that he will bring a lost person who is separated from God to life through the picture of Lazarus? Let's look at it a little deeper and see. The biggest clue, I think, is in verse number 15. Look in John chapter 11, verse 15. We will find the intent of the Lord. We'll start at verse 14. Then Jesus, uh, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. It doesn't get any more plain than that. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. You know what the clear intent of the Lord is? In verse 15, that they may believe. That's God's will and intent that they would believe. Adam was able to respond in the garden. God's the initiator. It starts with God, but he, he gave Adam the ability to respond. We saw that the prodigal son, he's in the pig pen. He is able to respond. He made some choices. Didn't start with him. It starts with God. God has built in us an ability to respond to truth. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Ephesians 2 says that you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are separated from God and you are dead. You cannot. You're totally depraved. You cannot save yourself. Salvation is only by grace. The question is, can you respond to this message right now? If someone here this morning is lost, can they respond to this message? Or does God have to just effectually call them, save them, and then all of a sudden now they can get saved after they realize that they're saved? If you're saved this morning, do you believe that a lost person that walked in and hear and hears the preaching of the Word of God, do you believe that they are unable to respond and God would have to regenerate them and then after God does something, then they're going to realize, oh, yeah, I just got saved. Does man have an ability to respond to the truth of God? Or is he a dead corpse like Lazarus? 
I'd say it's a good question. And what you have happening in John 11 is an instantaneous sign miracle. You've got a dead man coming to life. Now look at verse number 14 or, or uh, 15. Then said Jesus and them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent. You may believe. Nevertheless, let us go on to him. Now, if the intent is to help people believe, tell me again why we would need this if God's just going to effectually call and save who he will. Why do you need to gather people around and why does Jesus need to come to raise Lazarus from the dead? Because if, if his intent is for those to believe, why would he need to do that if his intent is just, well, I'm going to save who I will and, I'm, and others are going to be damned? Why would he need to do that? To me, that I can't fit the puzzle pieces together on that. It doesn't make sense doctrinally to me. God is doing something. He is performing a miracle. So people would see this sign, and the Bible says the intent is that they would believe, that they would respond. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus said unto her, this is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, believest thou this. We got a problem. As far as I can tell, Lazarus was a believer. Why would he have to die again? If this is going to be a picture of our regeneration. The primary focus is the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Ephesians 2, were you dead in trespasses and sins? Were you separated from God? Does the Holy Spirit woo and draw and all that? God initiates. Man has an ability to respond. He believes by faith. God saves by grace. Through faith alone, by Christ alone, and his finished work on the cross. Is that the end of our salvation? No. Because we have a body that we're trapped in. And when we die, where does our body go? In the ground. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. What are you and I going to get one day as believers in Christ? Our dead body is going to be resurrected. And he says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. So that physical part of our salvation will be when we get a glorified body. This is the whole idea behind John chapter number 11. It's the clear context. Lazarus is not the primary focus of the passage. The primary focus of the passage is Lazarus and the faith of those watching what is happening to Lazarus. Jesus is using Lazarus. But his focus and his and intent is for those watching this and seeing this, or we're now reading this, to see that God will raise the dead. 
and your body is going to be raised from the dead. You are going to get a glorified body. And he puts responsibility on those watching. And if they want to live, they've got to believe. Look at verse 20. Uh, look at verse 26 or 27. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Thank you. Look at verse 40. To Martha, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. What's your response? I don't see God saying, hey, everybody just kind of hang out around me while I raise Lazarus for the dead. And then just in a minute, I'm going to effectually call some and you're not going to know what happens till it happens. And then you'll. I don't see that in the verse. I don't see that anywhere in principle in the verse. Now, it's important we understand words, the definition of those words, and the context of those words. Look at John 11, 11. Lazarus is dead, right? Watch what it says. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Well, is he dead or is he sleeping? Was he taking a nap? Now, why do I point out that verse? Because it's important to get context. In the clear context of the passage, what is sleep likened to? Death. So when you see the word dead in the Bible, you just can't say this is what it means. You've got to read the context and understand the chapter so that you can define it contextually in the Bible. Make sense, everybody? We want to know, the, we want to know what the Bible says. Is Lazarus dead or is he asleep? Both. <laughs> what does asleep mean? Well, in this context, it means he's dead. When, when a parent says, hey, go take a nap, it doesn't mean you're going to go die. It means you're going to go to sleep and take a nap. We understand it has to be context there. Look at verse Look at verse uh, 4 uh, in John 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, this sickness is not unto death, except he was sick and he did die. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. If Lazarus, the dead body, is supposed to represent how God saves a lost man, then why does it say in verse number three, the Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick? Why does it say in verse number five, uh, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus? Why does it say Jesus loved Lazarus? Why does it say all the way in verse number 35, look at it, Jesus wept? Why? He's, he's weeping. He loved him. He's, he already believed in Christ. If this is a picture of lost people not 
having a total inability to respond to the gospel. If this is a picture of that, you got to tell me that the Bible has to now say you must be born again and again. Because it seems to me that Lazarus already believed in God. He was already there. It's showing the believer's resurrection from the dead. It is not teaching the total inability of lost people to respond to the gospel. It's a dead body. And you can't force Lazarus as a type of spiritual deadness to prove total inability. We're dealing with a physical deadness. And I propose to you this morning, Lazarus was already a believer. Now, we don't have a New Testament church. We understand that because Christ hasn't yet shed his blood and purchased it. But there was still a church. It's just not a New Testament church. You still had people that responded and believed the truth that God had revealed to them at that time. It's not spiritual deadness that John 11 is a reflection of. It's, it's a physical resurrection of a physical body. And you and I will rise again in the sense of our glorified body we will have someday. Look at verse 41, John 11. John 11, verse 41. Bible says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hast heard me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus is saying, really to everybody, you're going to believe what you saw. You're going to believe what you heard. You're going to believe me. His intent that people would respond and believe. Verse 45, then many of the Jews what do Jews require? Sign. Came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did. Believed on him. All of that that's happening with, with Lazarus, the clear intent is that they would believe on him. And you know what happened? Some Jews believed on him. You must believe. You must believe. The new term now is sovereign election. They're using that. It sounds more theological, I guess. So let me ask you a question. If God chooses to bestow his grace upon some, and then God chooses to not bestow his grace upon others, and instead he just, instead of giving them grace, he gives them justice, and if grace and justice are the character of God, how is that an injustice? In other words, if God is sovereign and he chooses some to give grace and others wasn't even a forethought that we all say everybody's a sinner, right? Does everybody deserve hell? Does God's justice need to be? Is, is he just and we're unjust? Okay, serve him justice. What would be wrong with God doing that? I'll tell you what would be wrong with it. It's not his character. John 1, 9 said, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God shines the light. It casts on every man. And his intent 
And his will is that all men would believe, even though all men don't believe. Why would Jesus tell the reprobate non-elect that my intent for you is to believe if they can't believe? That would be a cruel God. And I don't believe that that is the God of the Bible. I believe that you need to read yourself into the Bible to get that. I believe you need to be trained through textbooks and philosophers and theologians. And you need to, be, you need to learn that philosophy. I don't believe that you can get it by just clearly reading the text and understanding the context and running the verses like we're doing this morning. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying that I don't believe John 11 is showing that Lazarus is a dead body is a reflection of a spiritual dead lost person. Let's go back to Romans. Romans 5. Romans 5. Man, it's chock full, verse 15. It says, for if through the offense of one, many be dead. We talked about that. Watch what it says now. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. We have a contrast of death and grace. And the offense of one, many are dead, we know that. Adam's sin is the root cause while we all die. The gift of one, we see that we are made alive by that gift of one, by God's gift of grace. You have the fall of one and you have the grace of one. God's free gift proceeds through the many offenses. The idea here now is you've got one sin. And that one sin swept everybody into total depravity and total spiritual separation from God. One sin of Adam, right? And the idea here is starting to bring out in verse number 15 is that God's grace so much more abounds because not only do we have Adam's sin, we have all of our individual sins, all of our heart sins, all of the sins that we don't know about, times that by everybody in the world. And you know what you got? You have a grace that is so much greater than the one offense. This is the contrast that's being brought out now. God's grace is so much greater than the one sin. You have, two, you have two opposing powers. And you have the difference in intensity of both of those powers. You have a destructive power. One sin destroys all. But the recovering power goes beyond that one sin. And it is deep and as wide as every sin that we could ever commit. In other words, if one man can destroy mankind, much more can Christ abundantly restore what has been lost. Yes, Adam is a type. And Christ here is the anti-type. You would think it's the other way. But, but there's a contrast being brought out. Yes, they're both federal heads. 
you would say the type matches the anti-type. Adam matches Christ as both federal heads. But now at the close of this parenthesis, it's showing that they're not the same, okay? And it's bringing out the contrast and the difference of the two. His recovering power is so much more than the type, the atom, the destructive power of one sin. And people say, look, it's not fair. One man, one mistake, it's not fair. It's just as not fair for God to shed his light and his grace upon all man. It's just as unfair. That's the depth of his love. Much more. You see what it says? Much more the grace of God. Your debt is canceled. And you're put in a superior position. The end of verse 15 it says. And by the gift by grace. Which is by one man Jesus Christ. It says. Hath abounded unto many. Now stay with me. Look at that verse. It doesn't say. All will receive. It just says it hath abounded unto many. And that is the nature of the gospel. To abound unto many. If we go to a fair, we try to abound the gospel unto many. Unto all that are there. We don't try to start separating. Well, that person has purple hair. We'll leave them alone. We don't say, well, that person has a head covering on and they have, you know, it looks like they took drapes and made a dress out of it and they wear that. We don't get, we don't say, well, we'll just leave them alone. They look like they're spiritual. The person with the purple hair and the person with the, with the ball cap or the head covering, whatever you want to call it, we give them both the same message because one doesn't care. They just think, hey, God will just forgive. The other thinks their works will save them. Their works will keep them. Now, that isn't always the case. You see somebody with purple hair that you might talk to them, they might be a believer. You see somebody's got a head covering on and, you know, uh, you, they might be a believer. you got to talk to them. What am I saying? you got to abound it to everybody. You can't say, well, they look like this, they must be saved. They look like that, they must not be saved. The complete opposite could be true. Am I telling the truth? Am I telling the truth? You've got to abound it to everybody. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's wrath was appeased by the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary's cross. And because of that propitiation, now God is ready to forgive your sin. It says he tasted death for every man. But this many ties some people up. This many is referring to the sin of Adam and his race and all those generated out of that race, the generation of Adam. Matthew 20, he says, he came to give his his life a ransom for many. Well, does that just mean the elect? Mark 14 says, this is the blood of my New Testament, which is shed for many. He shed his blood for many. Isaiah 53, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Hebrews 2.10 says, bringing many sons unto glory. So does he just justify the elect? Does he just shed his blood for the elect? Does he just give his life a ransom for the elect? Does he bring many elect unto glory? 
Is that what the many is? And then the other that aren't the many are the reprobate? Is that what that means? If you say that uh, at the end of Romans 5.15, that it abounded unto many, are you saying you believe in a universalist style salvation where God's just going to save everybody? No. What I'm saying is we got to get some context. The same way we got context, context with the word dead. We got to do the same thing. And figure it out. You ready to figure it out? Get Galatians 2. Get Galatians 2. Galatians 2. This is Paul speaking under the Holy Spirit's inspiration. And it says in verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me only. You would have to read that into the text. To come away with the philosophy that, well, Christ only died for Paul here. Would anybody read Galatians 2.20? Would any Christian read that and come away with the idea that Christ just died for Paul? Nobody would do that. For I am crucified with Christ, me only. Nevertheless, I'm the only one that lived. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in only me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me only and gave himself for me only. That's the most ridiculous thing you can come up with. Every Christian knows, even if they're a babe in Christ, Paul is showing the personal depth that Christ's love that Christ had for him. You can put your hand up this morning and say that verse and apply it to you. It's ad nauseum. Everybody knows. Well, duh. Of course, this doesn't mean just Paul only. It's the whole world. And if you've believed, you can claim that verse. The same way, when it abounds unto many, that's everybody. It abounds unto everybody. That doesn't mean everybody will receive it. It means the light is cast on everybody. Look at John chapter 10. Are you a sheep? Matthew, are you a sheep? Well, let's find out. John chapter 10, verse 14. The Bible says, uh, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And am known of mine as the father knoweth me, even so know I the father and I lay down my life for the sheep only. That's a weird verse. What about those that aren't saved? Can they be saved? They aren't sheep yet. <laughs> Come on. We know Galatians 2.20. Paul's not saying, look, it's only me. You got, 
In John chapter 10, what do you say? Is God saying, look, he only died for a sheep? It's just the sheep only. That would tell me there's no sense even sowing seed and trying to get the gospel out. We took this train to Metamora, Indiana on our vacation. It's out in the middle of nowhere. You go online, you buy the ticket, and then you got to show up, you got to get your ticket, you got to get stamped, and then you got to get on the on the train. And it left at 12.01, not 12, 12.01. I guess it's a train thing. Give everybody one last minute to get there. If we miss the train, is there anything wrong with our ticket? No. The problem was with who? Me. I missed it. There's nothing wrong with the ticket. God shed his grace. It's, it's, he shed enough light for all man. Man doesn't respond to God. It's not God's fault. It's not the ticket's fault. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. Well, I just don't think you can, you know, you just can't resist. God will just irresistibly cause you to go to Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter seven. We'll start to wrap up, but I want to go through these verses. Acts chapter number 7. Acts 7 verse 51. You sift-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always, watch what it says, resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. Of whom you have now been now the betrayers and murderers. Looks to me like you can resist the Holy Ghost. Well, this is just a dead man responding negatively. It doesn't work on the positive. Come on. You got something real clear right here where you can resist the Holy Ghost. John 3. Look at John chapter 3. You don't have to be saved too long to know this verse. Watch where the distinction is. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Clear distinction between perishing and life. Nothing between elect and non-elect. For God sent his son not in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You have a clear, clear contrast between condemnation and salvation. Look at verse number 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You have a clear contrast between someone that believes and someone that doesn't believe. A response and a non-response. It's up to man to respond. God has made a way. Man must respond. Any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That's John 7. You thirsty? Come to Christ. Who makes you thirsty? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Revelation 22. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him hear it say, come. And let him that is the thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Who initiates that? Who calls? Who initiates it? It centers around God initiating it. But man being able to respond. Yes, he's totally depraved. Yes, he's dead spiritually and separated from God. God, the judge, he holds the death sentence in one hand. And he's got the free gift in the other. 
That death sentence has the crimson red stain of the blood of Jesus Christ on it. Showing that your sins are blotted out. Your debt's been canceled. And now you can stand risen in Christ. The free gift is much more than just a canceled debt though. You have the abounding of grace that covers your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The free gift is so much more than just accepting a canceled debt as far as the benefits you get out of it. You can forgive somebody and never want them in your house again. (laughs) You getting this? That's not so at Christ. Too many of us, all of our sins that Christ forgiven, it's like we carry them around in our wallet all day. We carry them around in our, if you're a lady, your purse all day. God said, there's far as east is from the west. (laughs) Don't you forget about that. Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. I'm talking about the benefits that you and I get by salvation by God's grace. It's so much more. Last verse, and we're done. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Watch what it says in verse number, verse number 14. 2 Corinthians 5, we'll read this verse, make a comment, and then we will be done for this morning. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, who did he die for? Pretty simple. And if he died for all, then we're all dead? Yep. And that he died for all, watch what they should do. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You, you know why the free gift of grace is so much greater than the one sin by Adam? Because it allows you now to live abundantly for the Savior. That's the abundance of his grace. He enables you now to have a desire to live your life 